Guys, my name's Nick. Welcome. I am. It's true. We, I, I'm feeling the heat. Uh, Josh just preached a sermon, and I'm about to preach another one. So uh, let's, let's get in. Uh, it's amazing that it's already uh, the Christmas season. If you're like me, you always feel a few months behind. The uh, more kids you have, the further you feel behind. Uh, so it's, it's, it's almost like I forget which year I'm in now. I think this is 2019. But uh, my name's Nick. I am the lead pastor here. We're going to be getting into God's Word uh, right away. So if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Uh, we'll get one to you. I'd like you to keep me honest. I'd like you to see what I see. Um, I want my job here is not to come up with anything new or flashy. My job is to be faithful to the text in front of us, to be faithful to God's word um, and to bring out from the storehouse of his word treasure for us to see, enjoy, um, cherish. But we are in Luke's gospel this morning, Luke chapter 18. We're going to read verses one through eight. It's a pretty, pretty awesome text. Um, I'll give you a moment to get there. In the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, third gospel there, and then uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I hope you all had some good turkey this last week, yeah? Tur- some turduckins, I hear, uh, took place. Uh, we went, we've had some health issues, you know, so we, ju- we, ju- we cheated. We just did, hey, that, that store kind of Whole Foods thing. Like, hey, can you just get the meal ready for us? We'll pick it up. Uh, it was good. It was delicious. Um, all right. Let me read. Luke 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray, guys. God, it is my hope that this morning in the midst of the holiday hustle that we're probably all already feeling, you would slow us down. You would still our hearts, our minds, our schedules, whatever it is that we feel so worked up about. God, you would you just hit pause on that. And allow us to hear from you. Allow us to truly engage you. God, I know that each person comes into this room this morning with their own stuff. When I know that, God, you are after them. 
in the best of ways. You're pursuing their heart. You're pursuing uh, their lives. You're pursuing God, their affections. Sometimes you do that by bringing great blessing. Like little crumbs leading us back to the source in you. And we follow and find our savior. Sometimes you do that, Lord, by bringing sorrow and hardship. You open our eyes to our mortality and our great need for you afresh. Lord, whatever you're doing with your people in this room here this morning and with me, could we just ask Ask that we would see more of you. We ask that we would know you deeper. We ask that we would encounter uh, your spirit in this place. We ask that you would lead us into prayer. And a longing and a waiting for the return of our king. So give me the ability to to preach now, I pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to ask a question, not a very popular question, not one that we always uh, like to consider or even ask ourselves, uh, because I have a feeling most of us are usually pretty uh, uh, discouraged, uh, um, uh, a little bit uh, let down by uh, what I'm about to address. But, but here's my question for you. How has your prayer life been lately? How has your prayer life been lately it's a question that i think we skirt around because if we're honest most of us kind of look and go gosh i mean i pray before meals does that count i i I say a few words when i'm looking for a parking spot you know at the mall uh does that count i think a lot of times our, our prayer lives are not vibrant and alive and fresh and active but instead a little stale a little cold Maybe even a little dead. Sometimes we're busy with just about everything else but prayer. And I I think the ironic thing uh, is that if ever there was a a season when this would be the case, uh, where we would be distracted away from prayer, we'd be busy with all other things except for prayer. It would actually be probably this Christmas season, right? I, I say it's ironic because this is the time, like like uh, Josh and Rochelle and family were saying, I mean, this is the time when we are, as a church, making space in our calendars, making space to actually remember the coming of our Savior. That's at least on paper what we're doing, right? And yet in practice, when, when we start to look and we see all the stuff going on, what happens is the holiday season, the Christmas season actually gets crazier than all of the times of year. And we find ourselves going all over the place and actually not making space to pray and engage the one we say we're making space for. We got, you know, we've got office parties to attend and little, you know, white elephant gift exchanges we got to get to and cookies we got to bake and and, and movies we got to watch. You know, it's, it's not Christmas time if we don't watch Elf ad nauseum like seven times in a row in my house. You know, that, that just, it's not going to feel like Christmas to me. So you've got all these things that we've got to do and places we've got to be. And in the midst of it, the reality is we kind of step back and go, prayer? Oh, oh yeah, I suppose. I suppose I should be talking to Jesus, talking to the Father, awaiting his return in worship and adoration. All the more reason, I suppose... Um, why well, the parable we have before us this morning is, is of critical importance to us. 
because really here what we have is 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 Jesus God just kind of saying, okay, like, listen, let's let's hit pause for a moment on all the busyness, on all the stuff, and let's come back to what it's all about. He's trying to reorient us. He's trying to bring us back into orbit around the one for whom we were created, about, about the stuff that really matters. He's trying to bring us back to God and bring us back to prayer. Now, I'll divide my dealings uh, with this text into three parts. You can find it there on your handout, or if you want to grab a, an electronic version, you can get it online at our website. But three parts for this sermon. First, the setup. As verse one, second, the story as verses two through five and the parable there. And then third, the significance verses six through eight as we kind of look at what this parable means for us. Now, first, then the setup, I should say as well, I have a few um, after that, I have a few closing kind of questions that I want to linger on for a while. Um, So if you see we're on point three and we're almost done, don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. I got more for us at the end that I actually hope will be perhaps some of the richest stuff I'll bring out this morning. So first, the setup. Uh, Before we actually get to verse 1, which sets up this parable, uh, I actually want you to drop your eyes down to verse 8 for a moment. uh, Because there's a clue here that can't go unmentioned, unnoticed, as it really kind of connects us back to all that we saw last time in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, the kind of context that connects us back to that discussion and actually shows that all that stuff is context for the parable and this discussion of prayer that Jesus goes on to to talk about in our text this morning. Verse 8, if you look at it, he comes out uh, in our text, last verse there, and says this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, he's talking about when the Son of Man comes. What's he talking about there? Well, we understand, given the discussion that's come before, and I don't have time to go into it, that he's talking about the second coming. He's talking about, listen, there's going to be a time when you will no longer see me, he says to his disciples, but then you will see me. You will long to see me, and then I will come again. The Son of Man will come again. He's talking about the second coming. And our big takeaway from two weeks ago when we looked at the verses uh, prior to our text this morning was basically that the kingdom of God actually comes in in two phases, if you will, two advents of, of, of the king. He comes in first in a manger at Christmas. He comes in slow. He comes in low. He comes in, he comes in humbly. He comes in looking like nothing. He dies on a cross and the world thinks it's over when it's really just getting started. There's this sort of, there's this first phase to the kingdom's arrival. This sort of already presentness of it. And yet there is also this not yet, this still to come aspect to it. This second phase that's coming with the second arrival of Christ. And we live, and this is what we kind of talked about. We live in the space between. Jesus has already come. He's already died on that cross. He's already ascended to the Father in heaven. We're already in that place where we're looking and wishing we could see him. And yet he's not yet here. We're waiting. We are waiting for the Son of Man to return. That's where we are. We're in the space between the two advents, the space between the two comings, the space between phase one and phase two of the kingdom's arrival. 
He's got something started, but it's not yet here in full. The, the, the righteousness, the freedom, the new heavens, the new earth, the justice, all that stuff, not yet here. I mean, anyone else? Still, you can, be, can I get an amen to that? Like your back is hurting. Your relationships are hard. You're still struggling with sin. The world is still a mess. Where's the king? I thought he came. Phase one. Phase two. And in the space between, what is it that we do? We pray, we pray, we pray, and we pray. As Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come. Yes, I know it's already here. The king has shown up and he's on the move, but let it come in full. Let what is, do, what is going on there in heaven come down to earth. Finally, pray and we pray, we pray and we pray. And that's the point of this parable. That's why our text begins the way that it does in verse one. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus knows that life in the space between the two advents is going to be hard. You've heard all sorts of wonderful things about him, all the power that he has. He's reigning, he's conquered death, and yet you live, and it seems like he's conquered nothing. It's hard, and you're going to cry out and feel like he's not on the move. And he's saying, listen, I am going to tell you a parable now. Luke kind of adds this little note, which helps the, the, the preacher and expositor. He tells me, it tells you essentially what the point of this parable is up front. He says, listen, Jesus is telling this parable so that in that space between the two advents, you would pray and not lose heart. And I found that wonderfully encouraging because you know what that's saying, right? It is essentially admitting it's Jesus, it's Luke, it's, it, it's the apostle. They're acknowledging that, uh, I guess Luke wasn't an apostle, I'm sorry. Uh, it's acknowledging that... Um, that um, this place is going to be hard. That there are going to be times where you're going to feel like giving up. There are going to be times where you are going to want to throw in the towel on praying. You're going to get up off your knees again, see nothing's happened and just kind of go, what a waste of my time. What a waste of my breath. God's not here. And I wonder if you have been in that place. I wonder perhaps if you are in that place even now. And if that is where you are. Jesus is speaking this parable to you. He's put this parable here for you. So that we could get some heart back in. Where it just feels empty. You find fervor and life coming back into your prayer life as we wait for the arrival of our king. So let's look at the parable then in detail. Um, I want to look at then, secondly, the story, verses 2 through 5. So it's kind of the setup where Luke really just tips his hand and tells us what it's all about. Uh, and now we get to the parable itself, the story here, verses 2 through 5. I'm going to read it. Uh, he said, in a certain city... Again, this is Jesus talking in a certain city. There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, let's say a few things on this. I think it's pretty easy to grab a hold of. I don't think it's all that complicated. I just want to slow us down, make sure we see the details and the, the kind of lead roles, the characters in this story before we move towards the significance of it for you and I. Uh, we meet here in this story a helpless widow and an unrighteous judge. Let's take them one at a time. The helpless widow, uh, we understand, has some injustice that's been done, some oppression that's been done to her by this uh, opponent, by this adversary who is against her in some way. And she feels like she has no hope. She can't, she, you know, in that day and age, you, in many ways, found your protection and your representation and all these things uh, through a, a, a male, either uh, your husband, your father, a son. So she was finding herself in this place of, of, of utter desperation. She was about to get swept away in the injustice and the oppression. And so she's like, no, 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 I'm going to keep coming, she says. I kept coming and I kept coming, asking this judge for justice, for vindication, for things to be made right. That's the helpless widow. But then we see this unrighteous judge. And we're told that in verse 2, he neither feared God nor respected man so with regard to the two great commandments the only things that god ultimately cares about love for him and love for neighbor this man flunks the test this man has no concern for god no concern for man only concern for himself and so this woman keeps coming but she has nothing to offer him. he has nothing to gain from it and so he is uninterested in providing the relief she so desperately seeks now, it's interesting. We, we know, I think, if you look at it carefully, that Jesus wants us to mark this selfishness of this man, um, in particular because of the way he kind of has the, the judge there almost like hold counsel within himself. And he the, like, listen, he takes the words that were used to describe him earlier and, and he actually puts these words now on the lips, on the tongue of the judge himself, which is very interesting when he's kind of deliberating uh, among himself, just kind of saying, what should I do? He, he says this down in verse four and five, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. The idea here, it would be as if this guy would say, though I am a scumbag, though I am a no good, you know, worthless pile of junk, I will, you know, help this woman out if it means she will stop bugging me and I can get back to my self-centered existence. See, Jesus is exaggerating here. So that we don't miss the point. Nobody talks like that. The guy probably thinks he's awesome. He's not gonna, Though I'm a horrible individual. Uh, 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 no worse human being could there be. I guess I will give you a choice. Nobody talks like that. He's trying to make the point, And that will come out later. But the idea is this. This man has no compassion. He has no love for God or neighbor. And yet, because of this helpless widow's persistence, she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming like a fly on his, you know, buzzing around the room. He decided, man, I can't get any rest unless I give 
for what she wants. She gets what she wants in the end. Now, the question for us is, what in the world is Jesus meaning for us to get out of this? What's the encouragement here towards prayer and not losing heart and all this? I think you can probably start to see it, but let me bring it out for you. This is what now we uh, see in verses 6 through 8 as we come to the significance. The significance. He comes out of this story and he begins to speak to the point for you and I. Uh, this is what he says. This is, this is important. Jesus tells a parable to get at this. So we don't want to miss it. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, what we have here is an example of something we've seen before and we've called it kind of the how much more logic. Jesus uses it somewhat regularly. But the idea is, if this, how much more this? If this is true, how much more will this be true? That's the idea. We're supposed to consider the story here with this widow and judge and then extrapolate from it certain implications with regard to our relationship with God. And I think this comes out in particular when we start to compare, contrast the identities of the two people in this story and then us and our relationship with God. So you've got, you know, this 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 petitioner, the widow and the one being petitioned, the the, the judge. And then you've got us who come to God in prayer and God, the one who's being petitioned. And we're supposed to look at this parable and draw out things to 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 understand uh, with regard to our relationship with God. So let me let me just pause on that for a moment and show you what I mean. Um, to reiterate, then in the parable, we have a unrighteous judge. Jesus even calls him that there in verse six. We have an unrighteous judge who doesn't care about anybody but himself, and we have a helpless widow. We have the one doing the petitioning. She has no real connection to this judge. She's not family. She's not friend. She's annoying. She has no chips to bargain with. She's got nothing. She can kind of bribe the judge with, get him on her side. She's got nothing other than her obstinance and persistence. She has nothing other than that. I can annoy you into submission. That's what I have. Now, here's... One thing I need to make clear, if we were to simply read this parable and then draw straight lines from that to our relationship with God, I think we'd run into a lot of trouble. I think we'd make some devastating mistakes. Let me be clear then. The point here is not Jesus is not saying, hey, listen, God is like this judge up in the sky and he's kind of uninterested in your needs. He doesn't care about anybody himself. He's not righteous. He's not good. But if you bug him enough, hence, if you pray always and don't lose heart, you'll get what you want in the end. He will buckle. At the end of the day, he's a softie and he'll give you what you ask if you keep pounding him over the head for it. 
We do that and we have just run a dagger through the heart of prayer as it's understood in the Bible. It's not that. That's something kind of like what the Gentiles would understand when, you know, uh, Jesus would say, I think it's in the Sermon on the Mount, they think they'll be heard for their many words. Just keep going, keep saying, keep going. And finally, we'll get the gods on our side. See, Heavenly Father's not like that. He's not just capricious and doing whatever he wants up there until you finally, you know, lasso him in and get him to work for you. That's not the point of prayer. And this is where the how much more logic starts to come in. This is why it's so important that we see it. If this, how much more this. So let me show you how that would work here. Then this is when it comes to the unrighteous judge. Jesus comes out comparing, contrasting our God to him. And he says this, will not God, listen, if that guy, if that bum would give justice and and finally give what this woman is after, how much more, he says, will not God give justice to his elect? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. As one commentator concludes on this point, if a wicked man will sometimes do good, even if from bad motives, how much more will God do right? That's the point. How much more? If even this guy did it at the end of the day, how much more will God do it for his children? He is not like this unrighteous judge. He is righteous and holy. And more than that, he's a good father. These are the sorts of things we see Jesus speaking all over the Gospels. I'll give you just a few that came earlier in in, in Luke. Luke 11, 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil... Kind of like this unrighteous judge. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you who are evil, let's be honest, we're a whole lot more like the the unrighteous judge than anyone else in this story. Me, myself, and I. That's my Trinity, baby. And you look, you go, wow. If even we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our kids, usually, how much more your heavenly father who is good, he says. Or Luke twelve thirty two, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That just blows right out of the water. The sense that God is up in the heavens with his arms crossed. Waiting to be persuaded why he should care for you. That's not our God. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is we're down here going. We don't need God. We got this. We're fine. And he's up there going. No you're not. You need rescue now. Jesus get on it. He is the initiator. He moves. He, he takes delight in giving us the kingdom. It's not that he has to be lassoed and wrangled to the ground. And finally, he will open up his treasure you know, store and give to it. No, he loves to give us the kingdom. 
He's leaning in and ready to help. That's the picture that we have. And that's why Jesus is saying, if this unrighteous judge can even be wrangled into giving what this woman is asking for, how much more will God give to his saints? And they get on their knees and they ask. And they petition and they cry. But there's more here as well to the comparison and contrasting that we can do. Because it's not just the unrighteous judge and then our, our, our righteous and good judge and father, God. It's also, I think we're meant to compare uh, ourselves to this widow and can understand how much more logic even flowing from that. Because when we consider this widow, we remember that she doesn't have anything. She doesn't have any connection, any relational tie to this judge whatsoever. She has no representative, no, no guy to kind of stay in that culture, which you, which you really needed to stand up for her and defend. Well, there, it was just her all alone. And even in that space, even without anything like that, the judge gives into her. And now here's, I think what's brought out with, we are not like that really to God. We're not just some distant, cold, you know, individual who's bugging him. We're his children. We're his beloved. We're his bride. Or in the word of our text, we are his elect. Verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect, to his chosen ones? You're not just a random person knocking on the door. You're his. You're sensing the how much more in all of this. Let me say something about that idea of being his elect. We, we, I understand that there is confusion over this concept. I just want to say a word about it. I don't know, biblically speaking, how all of it fits together. And when sometimes, depending on what you do with the idea of God's choosing us, you, you, you can cut this way, you can cut that way. But in either sense, you run up against mystery. In either sense, you, 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 you have to just stand in awe at the sovereignty of God and the way it all fits together. But I, I will at least say this. We cannot... I don't think we cannot neuter that word to such a degree that that it removes the activity of God, the active movement of God towards his people. Because I think that's what's brought out in the grammar of our text. And that is what's brought out by that word elsewhere in the scriptures. And I want to show you some of this. But in our text, that's why I, I highlight there the fact that you have that possessive pronoun, his elect. These are not just kind of those who have, have chosen him and he knows about them. These are his chosen. These are his people. He has in some way placed his name upon them. He has gone after them and wrapped his arms around them. There's a possession here to this idea. It's not just generic. And then when you go and you look at the rest of Scripture and you kind of see this idea come into play again and again and again, let me give you a few. Just kind of, I want to show you the activity of God in moving towards you in salvation. The activity of God in laying his hands on you and bringing you into his son, adopting you into his family, preserving you unto glory. That, that's the sort of stuff that's coming out with this word. Mark 13, 19 through 20. Let me read you this. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. He's talking about the last days and the great tribulation that's to come. And then he says this. This is Jesus speaking. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, there's the word again. Now notice the accent on God's uh, activity here, whom he chose. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus emphasizes God put his hands around them. And for their sake, he will shorten the days of the great tribulation that's to come so that they will make it to glory and not fall away. Well, that sounds crazy. Or John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's Jesus speaking to his disciples. There's activity. There is movement from God towards his people. First Corinthians 27 through 30. Last one I'll give you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So in case you were getting all puffed up thinking that you're awesome and that's why God laid hands on you. You have this text to kind of flatten you down to size. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I love this, verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, how all of that holds together with divine sovereignty, human responsibility, I I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, you're going to cut up against mystery on some of that. But what I do know is clearly in the scriptures, there is activity of God moving towards you. That that there is God. If you are in Christ, what he's saying there, if, if you are in him, God did that. That's God's work in your life, bringing you into his son. And here's the point. Now we get to the how much more logic. You see, the widow's on the outside. The widow's on the outside. No relationship to this judge. And she finally manages to kind of bug him into submission. We, on the other hand, have the exact opposite. It hasn't been us coming to him. It's been him coming after us. It's been him moving towards us. She had no one to stand on her behalf. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son lives to make intercession for us. Do you understand that? And he has grabbed a hold of you. That's that's the point of that word. You have a widow over here and you have his elect over here. And if he's begun this work in your life, how is he going to just turn his back on you now when you come to him in prayer in your time of need? He's not. That's the how much more. Are you guys sleeping? Am I scaring anybody? You guys all right? Okay. That's the how much more more in all of this now what i might say here just to put a final image on it it's kind of the difference between a salesman coming to your hat coming to your door and a son right you got the salesman you got some of those perhaps that come by your neighborhood and even though you have the no soliciting sign out there they're still 
you know, once a week they're coming by. And finally, it's like, listen, you open up the door just because they're bugging you. Okay, listen, I'll take two of whatever you're selling. Just go. But then your son coming back from, you know, college for the holiday or whatever, like SNL, my brother right there. It was your son coming back. I mean, mom and daddy waiting at the window. Right? Before he can even wrap his little knuckles on the door, it's open. There's coffee brewing. There's log on the fire. Come in and tell me all about it. I want to know. Are you hungry? I mean, I remember coming home from college. It was always nice because it was like, like, you know, you get the special treatment. My sisters has all, has always, has always, or had always been there, right? They were younger than me. They were still at home. When I came home, they were always like, why are you treating Nick like this? What's it? We don't get any of it. You know, it's because they're always there. But then the sun comes like, come on. We're, they're just ready to take care. Love. So that's, that's the picture here. Prayer isn't, come on, answer. And him sitting by there, oh, I guess I'll open the door and buy a couple of things. No. It's him moving towards. It's him opening the door. It's, it's, it's him saying, come on in. That's what we have when we come to pray to our Father. He is Father and He is faithful. You are child and you are chosen. You put the two of these truths together and therein you have the unbreakable backbone of the Christian disciple. That's how you persist in prayer and not lose heart. He is father. He is faithful. I am child and I am chosen. How can it be? I don't know. Praise be to Christ. I'm coming in. Two Questions. I said I was going to close with two questions as I spend some significant time on these. Um, I do. I, I, want to, I want to linger here. I have a couple questions. We'll take them one at a time with regard to prayer and, and what we're seeing in this text and hopefully address even some of the things that we experience um, when we are tempted to lose heart and whatnot. But question number one um, is a bit of a mouthful, but hopefully it's memorable. I, I found it to be so. Uh, are you unrelenting in your lamenting? Question number one, are you unrelenting in your lamenting? Um, according to this text and many others, I, I think we're to understand that the Christian life, uh, the life of the disciple, the life of a follower of Christ will often be what I would call the unvindicated life. Okay. Uh, you will be, if you are following Christ and you're, you're trusting him with your life and you're living in accordance with his rule and reign and all these things that listen to me, life on this earth, it's not always going to go well. In fact, what will happen is, is you will often be overlooked. Like when all the other guys are cutting corners or putting their best foot forward and you refuse to kind of, you know, bash another guy at work or whatever it is, you might get overlooked for that raise or whatever it is. You may be overlooked. You may be misunderstood. You, you, you may be ill-treated. You may be maligned. You may be spoken poorly of. You may be taken advantage of for following Jesus in his way and refusing to kind of go the way of the world and buy into its, its ethic of self, you know, justifying, self, you know, promoting, self, you know, whatever it is. And you're 
waiting on God. You're trusting him. You're trying to follow him. Listen, it's going to be the unvindicated life. If you're like, nobody gets it. I feel like I'm just taken advantage of. I feel like this is hard. And the question that we will constantly have to face in all of this is, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do in the face of the unvindicated life? Are you going to vindicate yourself? Are you going to take matters into your own hand? Are you going to lash back out, you know, and make that person pay for what they did? Or are you going to let vengeance be the Lord's and trust him? What are you going to do about it when you look out and you see, man, the sinners are prospering in their wickedness and the saints of God are languishing in the dirt? What are you going to do? Well, in the words of verse 7 of our text, we cry to God day and night. That's the only biblical way to live in light of the unvindicated life that is the space between the two advents. We cry out to the to the father, to the to the righteous judge, to the one who's laid his hands on us and says he won't let us go no matter what befalls us. We cry out to him day and night. Now, in these words, it seems to me we're actually confronted with the biblical category of lament. And that's why I I'm talking here about this idea of being unrelenting in our lamenting. That there is this day and night crying in anguish that's going on. This is the biblical category of lament. Now, taken from our modern dictionaries, lament means something like this. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow, an expression of regret or disappointment, a complaint. Now, we might be prone as Christians to think, am I allowed to do that? Like, am I allowed to cry out and, and, and struggle and grieve and, 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 and even complain and, and all this? Like, this doesn't seem, you know, I'm supposed to, I thought I'm supposed to rejoice always. And I got the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is peace, joy, patience, kindness. You know. Yes, but Paul says, man, even though I'm rejoicing always, there, I, I am also always sorrowful. There's this brokenness that marks this place, the space in between the two advents. And so while there is joy because of the already of the kingdom's arrival, there is sorrow because of the not yet of the coming kingdom uh, as it's in full when Christ returns. And so we will have both. And here's the bottom line. Then Uh, if we are not lamenting, we are not truly living. At least not in reality as it is. So if you are our sick, because he's saying, listen, these saints, the, the, the elect here are crying out day and night. That's like a mark of the child of God, right? Is to cry out to him longing for more. We know we were created for more. And so if, if. You have a person who is not lamenting, then I think what you know, you've got at least one of four things in play. I'll give you them very quickly. You can search your own heart on this. First thing that might be in play if there's not unrelenting lamenting is is, is this what I would call denial. So here's just the idea that, you know, we all like to kind of bury our head in the sand if we're honest and live like, hey, I don't want to think about the hard stuff. I don't want to even go there. And so we kind of live in denial. We're not lamenting because we're not truly living. 
We're not willing to talk about the disappointment and the pain and go flip to Psalm 88 where, where, where the guy's just going, I'm crying out day and night. And the Psalm just ends like that. There's no, there's no like hope or joy. It just, it just ends in the basement. You're like, what the? That's in the Bible. Yes, it is, because that's going to be our experience. And if we're not willing to go there, we're not walking in reality. We're walking in denial. And God in this text is inviting you to feel. He's inviting you to step towards him with your laments. That's not something you just do in your journal secretively, you know, or, you know, when you listen to your, your, nobody listens to emo anymore, but (laughs) it's not just age dream probably, but you, you know, when you're, it's something that God wants to hear speaking to him, lamenting in his direction day and night. So denial could be in play. Another thing that might be in play is what I kind of referenced at the beginning. It's this idea of distraction. If we're not lamenting, if we're not crying out, um, perhaps we're not in denial. Perhaps we recognize, man, this world is broken. I am broken. I long for the king to come and make it right. Perhaps we're just distracted. Perhaps we just got a lot going on and we don't have time. You know, this was actually the issue in, in Noah and Lot's day that we saw in the text previously. I don't know if you remember, but they were just busy with a lot of stuff. They forgot to cry out to God because life was pretty good and they were enjoying it. And then suddenly the judgment of God came and they were not ready. It says they were eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and planting and building. And then it came. And they were swept away in the fire and the flood. So distraction could be in play. There's also this idea of deviation. So it may be you're not in denial anymore. It may also be that you're not even distracted. You see the issues. You see the brokenness. You see the things you want to fix. You see the stuff you need rescue from. You just don't think God can do it. You just give up on God and you're going after something else to put that back together. You, you deviate from the gospel and God's solution and you go after false gods and false gospels. So instead of, hey, crying out, unrelenting, lamenting to the only one who can truly help, we go, no, no, no. All right, it's clear. It's clear. You're not going to do anything about this. I'm going to take this into my own hands. So maybe what I really need to change things to make, you know, uh, this place feel like heaven on earth. Maybe I need a new career. Maybe I need a new, you know, change of location. Maybe I need, you know, a new relationship, whatever it is. That's going to get it. Deviation. I'm not crying to God anymore because we no longer think he can or will help. The last thing is, and this is probably, this is just where the train gets off. This is the saddest part of it. This is this idea of despair. Despair is just this idea that, okay, no, I'm not in denial anymore. I know this place is hard. I know it's broken. I'm not distracted anymore with this or that. I've tried the deviation piece. I've tried God. I tried this religion. I tried, you know, secular. I tried getting all the stuff. I tried buying the house. I tried the religion and nothing worked. I'm done. And this is one of the reasons why the suicide, suicide rate in our country is climbing. It's we just, I, I don't know what the answer is. Despair. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Now, 
What we come to find out then is that it actually takes great work and great faith to be unrelenting in our lamenting. To continue to come to God day and night, bringing him our requests, bringing, vocalizing, naming our, our struggles and our pains. That actually requires great faith. You're going to want to deviate. Or you're going to want to numb it. You're going to want to do something else. Then kind of own it in his presence and let him meet you there. You're going to want to do something else. It takes great faith to say with Peter when the crowds are, you know, leaving Jesus. And Peter just looks at Jesus looks at him and goes, are you going to go too? And he says, listen, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. I know they're all bailing on you, but you're my only answer. I mean, as Peter would preach later, I think it was on the day of Pentecost or something like, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. If, if, if it's not him, it's, it, it's no one. It's despair for me. I mean, you're it. You're option A, option B, option C, all the way down to Z. That's it. You, you let me down, it's over. I'm not going anywhere. Unrelenting, lamenting. I feel it. I long for it. And we bring it to him. So I wonder, are you unrelenting in your lamenting? Question number two, and this is where we'll close. Does prayer really work? I mean, this is certainly a question we all want to ask. Do I want to ask it? Yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure you probably want to ask it too, but we're all kind of scared to ask it. Like, oh man, the pastor's going to slap me on the wrist or worse. The community is going to shun me if I actually say, hey, listen, I'm not sure prayer works. Unless your prayer does anything. Like we read there, really? Well, I am here giving you permission to step into that question, step into that struggle. And I want to close with some thoughts on this because we're all there. I mean, we read this text and we go, man, he says that the justice is going to come speedily. I like that word speedily. That sounds good. We can work with that. I mean, that means I ring the butler's bell and the butler shows up. But you come in, you ring the bell. (laughs) Ain't nobody there. Things aren't getting done. I've been praying for certain things for decades. Where is that? Does prayer really work? Come on, Nick. Sounds good on a Sunday morning in a nice little room. But in reality, let me um, give you three things to consider. Three things I think that are important to remember uh, when you're faced with such crises of faith. Um, three things that we got to we got to see if we're going to re- remain persistent in prayer, unrelenting in our lamenting. First, God meets us or meets with us in our prayers. God meets with us in our prayers. So let me say this. Um, Our question, does prayer really work, actually already shows our cards a bit and exposes some, some ignorance and even some idolatry with regard to what prayer is really all about. Okay, we treat prayer oftentimes in that question. It's kind of got this utilitarian aspect to it. Like, hey, I want to make sure it's working, you know, like a machine or something like I want to you know, I, I input a I, I, I output B. It ain't working. 
We want the results when prayer is fundamentally first and foremost about a relationship. That's what prayer is at the bottom is meeting with God in that place. We, we expose we don't have any clue what it's really all about when we just kind of want to get on our knees as some sort of, you know, magic mumbo, you know, guru thing. And we get what we that's not it. It's 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 talking to your dad. It's it's talking to the one who made the cosmos. It's relationship. That's why. Paul would say, listen, when 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 God puts his spirit in you, he puts the spirit of his son in you. And you want to know the first thing that baby does cries out, Abba, father. When you become newborn in the faith, when you are born again in Jesus and the spirit of God is there, the first thing the spirit causes you to do is cry out. Abba. Father, it it immediately thrusts you into the relationship that you were created to have with God by way of prayer. Prayer is this fancy word, but it's just talking to a friend. It's talking to your dad. And if if, if, I'll go this far as to say this, if you are not praying to first meet with God as father and friend, you are not yet praying at all. Because that's fundamentally the point you're not shaking a vending machine and punching the buttons hoping to get your snack you're talking to a person and when you start engaging that stuff starts to happen but we often myself included know very little about that and that's part of our problem uh The second thing I wanted to bring out on this is that God moves in response to our prayers. So first, we need to remember that God meets with us in our prayers. Second, God moves in response to our prayers. Um, Hear me on this. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean he's not answering. He is. And he always is. Um, sometimes, and this is what we get so excited about. Sometimes we come to God in prayer and we watch as the circumstances or the course of events change in view of that prayer. It would seem so the cancer goes away. The, 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 the boss gives the raise. The loved one comes home. The friend gets saved and we go, whoa, prayer works. Woo. Yes. But then other times. You're going and I said the same words. I quoted the same promises. Think about other times it doesn't. You don't see the same effects externally or the circumstances remain. And here's the point that I would drive in. Whether the, the course of affairs, whether the circumstances change or not, there is one thing I can assure you that is happening. And that is that God is at work changing you. That God is moving towards you in those moments, changing us, changing you. Sometimes through prayer, God parts the waters. Other times through prayer, God supplies the strength we need to swim. But in either case, God is responding. God is answering. Prayer. He is engaging. He is moving on it. 
Now, I'll give you another example of this or another image to kind of put on it. When we hear of unrelenting lamenting or persistent prayer and this sort of thing, we can think it's kind of like this combat between God's will and mine. Right? Okay, if I push hard enough, I will get what I want. But that's not what prayer is. In fact, it's kind of ironic. Here's what you find. You find that the harder you push, the more you actually start to be conformed to Him. The image I'd give you is this idea of like clay pressing into a mold. So we're like this clay and we're going, yes, I'm going to press in. I'm going to get what I want. What we come to find out is we're actually pressing into his heart, pressing into his will. And we start to find ourselves conformed to him. We are the ones changing by the end of it. It's not my will versus yours in this cosmic battle for the ages and I'm going to win, take you. It's no, I press in and ironically, amazingly, I come out a different person. I'll come out a different person. We enter our prayer closets, perhaps with our own desires, but we come out with his. So God moves in response to our prayers. It always works. Just not always in the way that we're wanting, perhaps, or expecting. So many examples of this in the I'll I'll be done here soon, so don't worry. So many examples of this in the throughout the scriptures. But think of Job. Job comes in unrelenting, lamenting, right? Thinking he knows God, what are you doing? This is horrible. I mean, where is the judge of the universe? But he ends, he ends with his face in the dirt. Now, I know God raises him up, but before that, he gets the point. Here's what happens. Uh, Job 42, 5 through 6. I had heard of you. This is the end of the book. This is the, essentially the climax. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Man, I thought I knew you, and then I came after you in prayer, and then I met with you, and now I realize you are God, and that's enough for me. He was changed. Not the other way around. Same thing with, if you know, the Old Testament uh, prophet Habakkuk. He starts off, he's, he's looking at, you know, uh, the, the, um, the Babylonians being raised up and the threat coming towards uh, Israel and Judah and, and, and uh, they're in, in Jerusalem and the holy city. And he recognizes that, man, judgment's about to come. And he just goes, God, you don't know what you're doing. He laments in God's direction. And by the end of the book, he says, listen, whether there be fruit on the vine or not, I trust God. Whether those Babylonians come in here and they sack this entire place or not, I trust you. I have met with you. You see, it wasn't the plans of God that were changed through his persistent prayer in that place. It was him. God's working. God's moving. And of course, you have Jesus in Gethsemane, right? You have the, 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 the blood-curdling prayer. God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to drink your wrath. I don't want to face your judgment. If it's possible, take it away. Pressing in, lamenting in his father's direction. His father doesn't take away the cup. But Luke tells us that his father sends an angel. To strengthen him. 
Son, I can't take the cup from you, but I can help you drink it. That's what we'll find a lot of times. Prayer is working, just not in the way and the timing that we always want. Final thing, and this is just a sentence or two just to close us. So God, first of all, meets with us in our prayers. God moves on our prayers. Finally, God makes everything right in the end. And that's really what comes out in our text. When the Son of Man returns, and we'll see it all clearly. What we often forget is two things. God is telling a longer story, and he always gets the last word. He, he's telling a longer story than you realize. We want it to end where, you know, we, we got this life here that's just awesome. He may just let us die. But then he says, you know what? Not a hair of your head will perish in the end. Longer story, last word. This is Jesus. Good Friday. Drinking the cup. Easter Sunday. Up again, the father vindicating his son. Longer story, last word, making all things right. And he'll do it for us. So the hope and, 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 and the encouragement, the exhortation this morning is that we persist in prayer and not lose heart. Let's pray. God, we come to you you are our savior you are our king you rule and reign in ways that we often feel are improper poorly timed poorly managed we think we could do better <laughs> god forgive us we want to be with job in the dirt we want to be with jesus saying yet not our will but yours be done Christ, would you come? Would you teach us how to pray in these moments? Would you show us what it means that you are a father and we're your beloved children? Would you let that give us strength to continue and persevere as we wait in this space between the advents for your second coming? In Jesus' name, amen.